Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to Revision Pod with myself, Mr. Galley. And Mr. Forster. How are you doing this afternoon, sir? Very well, thank you. Fantastic. Very good. You had a nice day teaching? Yeah, lovely. Wonderful, wonderful. So I thought I'd start off with a little bit about what this podcast is going to be about and why we've decided to do it. I think year 11, incredibly stressful time. A lot of students want to revise. And a question we get asked a lot in English is how do I revise for English? And there's a lot of different answers to that. There's different things you can do at different times. There are times when you want to sit down and write a full essay out. You might have a whole hour. There are times when you want to read over a text and go over some of the key points. And there are also, I think, those 10, 20 minute periods where sometimes you just need a little hit, a little, a little bit of extra. And, and that's why we're here. Exactly. We thought, why not put into, put into 15 minutes a little thing that can hopefully help you and, uh, and get you some good grades. So... What we're going to be doing is on this podcast, every week we're going to be looking at a different question within one of your key texts. Now, it's worth saying that in the bio of this podcast, you can actually download the question pack that we're going to be working from. So if you, it would be a great idea to pause this now, go to the bio in the podcast and download the question pack, and then you will be able to see exactly what we are working with. All right, welcome back. Mr. Forster, would you like to start off by talking about the question that we are going to deal with today? So we're going to be doing question number five in the pack, which is uh, an extract taken from Act 1, Scene 5. And the question is, starting with this extract taken from Act 1, Scene 5, explore how Shakespeare presents love in Romeo and Juliet. We're doing Romeo and Juliet. That's something I probably should have said in the introduction. A good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, this is perhaps the most obvious question that we could be asked in the play. Um, And if you haven't thought about this question yet, Time to think about it now. Mm. Um, The first thing to think about, I think, is when we're considering this extract is let's talk about what types of love we've already seen in the play. By Act 1, Scene 5, any kind of simple notion of love in the play has been entirely deconstructed and taken apart. We've seen Romeo's unrequited infatuation with Rosaline. We've seen Mercutio's bawdy jokes and the misogyny of the Capulet servants, where instead of love, we see discussions of rape. Um, We've also seen marriage as this contract to be negotiated between um, the patriarchal figures of Capulet and Paris. Mm. Therefore, it's only at this point in the play that we finally see what we've been promised from the prologue, the star-crossed lovers. Um, And so I think it's a very interesting scene. I think that's absolutely right, sir. And it's, I mean, what you're, if I can boil down what you're saying, essentially we've not had a very good vision of love up until this point in time. We've seen mopey teenage boys. We've seen love as a device for both... Uh, misogyny and sort of social advancement. We've not seen the love that we've been promised. And, and crucially, we haven't yet seen the two lovers promised by the title. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen them on stage together. Absolutely. So if we move on to the extract, so you're now looking at question five. As you can see, the question will give you an extract. Your essay will always begin with the extract. So what we'll do in terms of this pod is we're going to start off by talking you through how we would analyse the extract. 
We will then talk about how we would address the rest of the play. And then moving on from that, in the final section, we will then look at the real stretch and challenge stuff. So we'll talk about those of you who are targeting those real top grades, those sevens, eights and nines. We're going to look at the kind of analysis that is going to put you in those top bands. Uh, So without further ado, sir, I will defer to the might of your uh, extraordinary brain. And why don't you tell us how you would approach the extract? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in your essay, we want to consider context as well. I think one little context point we might want to work into this paragraph is a very simple fact that Shakespeare based this play on a poem by Arthur Brooke. Oh, yeah. And in Arthur Brooke's poem, it takes weeks for the couple to fall in love and their relationship to progress. Whereas actually what we see here in the scene is that Romeo falls in love with Juliet instantly. Mm. He says, in fact, did my heart love till now? A question that, given his infatuation with Rosaline throughout Act One, clearly seems ironic. I've seen, uh, I've seen versions of the play when that's got quite a big laugh from the audience at that point. And, and I think, therefore, it's important to talk about um, what does this actually mean? Mm, and I think it's fascinating because really... There's two interpretations. I think it's important that we say that good essay writing will often look at two different interpretations of the same same point. And I think there's one of the ways you can read Romeo saying, did my heart love till now is quite a positive, optimistic way. You can kind of say, well, look, he did love Rosalind, but his love for Juliet is so strong. It's so all-encompassing that that love feels tiny, feels like the... Uh, the irrelevant moon being killed by the sun of Juliet. So you might explore that positive notion that, wow, this is the real thing. This is what love is. But then you could look at it another way. You could explore the idea that when he says, did my heart love till now, is he in fact just another immature teenager who's basically falling in love with anyone who wanders into his, uh, his line of sight mm. for too long? Definitely. And I think that gives us a really interesting structural contrast between Romeo at the start of the play and Romeo from this point on in the play which is how the students might want to frame those paragraphs but of course because it's Shakespeare because it's uh, Romeo and Juliet where those really rich marks are going to come from is of course in the analysis of the language so you're, you're in the exam you've got this question you set out your paragraph you've got a nice topic sentence where are you now looking for that really rich language well i think the most obvious point to start by analyzing is how romeo tries to describe juliet he's a succession of metaphors as if as if one won't do as if somehow he can't find the right language to describe her beauty he says oh she doth teach the torches to burn bright it seems she hangs upon the cheek of night like a rich jewel in an ethiop's ear beauty too rich for use for earth too dear So this is quite an interesting succession of metaphors because it's important to note he doesn't simply compare Juliet to some already superlative beauty. He doesn't say she is like a torch. Instead, he says that she teaches the torches to burn bright. Mm, The implication being that she is the the light that that teaches fire itself to burn. She is the light that shines brighter than any of the light at the Mm. night mask. And likewise, there's this double metaphor, this reference that, that... sets her up both as this jewel in um, the, the ear of the personified um, knight who is portrayed as this beautiful be- Ethiopian woman, but also at the same time as the star or a moon. So, I mean, this is, of course, the same trick Rihanna uses when she says, shine bright like a diamond. Absolutely. Like diamonds in the sky. But the point here is that Romeo's language somehow can't contain Juliet's beauty. Yeah. And perhaps neither Rihanna. Neither can Rihanna. Neither, neither his modern contemporaries. Well, the... It's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think also it links, um, it links fantastically to other points in the play where we have imagery of light on dark. And indeed, the whole motif of light 
begins at this point and doesn't really leave us throughout the whole play. So students looking to bring in the ideas of light at this point would do well, I think, to have an arsenal of light. I don't mean Arsenal, the football team. I mean a, 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 a set of metaphors to do with light that they can employ for these points. Now, I think that really gives us quite a lot for the extract. I think if they've got that point about Romeo's rhetorical question and they've got that bit about the torches and uh, the duel, then they're doing fantastically well. So, right, you're sitting in the exam, you've written your first paragraph, you've explored the extract, you're confident, you've brought in a bit of context, you're now, of course, going to move on to the rest of the play. Mm. Now, where are you looking? Well, I think the obvious place to start is let's contrast this love with the love that we've previously seen. Let's look at Act 1, Scene 1, and consider how does Romeo describe his love for Rosaline? So in Act 1, Scene 1, he talks of his feelings in a series of oxymorons. Um, He talks about a cold fire, a sick health, before describing love to be a smoke raised with a fume of sighs, a sea nourished with lover's tears, a madness most discreet, a choking gall and a preserving sweet. Mm. I think what all these metaphors have in common is the idea that that he doesn't understand what love is. Love is nothing concrete. Um, And even more important, these are all metaphors that aren't describing a woman. He's not talking about Rosaline. He's talking about this abstract notion of love Mm. itself. It's as if he's he's defined by contradictions he doesn't understand what he's talking about yeah and it's that it's suppose it's that classic thing that we all do sometimes isn't it because the more the more you can sound like you know about something the more it sounds like you do but of course the more he talks the more his words give away the fact that actually he doesn't know anything about it and it's a really interesting point i think that Juliet's arrival in the play heralds not only the arrival of Juliet but the arrival of meaning. Up until this point in time I think we've had all of this stuff that doesn't really mean anything. You have this stupid fight between the Capulets and the Montagues. Mm. You have Romeo's incredibly annoying oxymorons where he just sounds like this whinging, annoying sort of Erswart's poet. And Mercutio goes on about Queen Mab. Exactly. I mean, which I'm sure you're all hoping will come up as the extract in, uh, in this year's exam. It will. Uh, and... Uh, you're just left in this world. You've been promised something. You've been promised the greatest love story ever told. And instead, you get all of this nothing, all of this great oxymoronic nothing. And until Juliet appears, until Juliet lays, um, and sorry, until Romeo lays sight on Juliet, you, are, you don't have a world that means anything. And I think we can see this actually by contrasting Act 1, Scene 1 now with Act 1, Scene 5. Um, moving on from the extract, of course, I think we need to consider the fact that when Romeo and Juliet first talk together on stage, their first exchange is structured as a sonnet. Mm. So a sonnet is a 14-line poem traditionally associated with love. So the very form of the, in, in which they're talking is suggesting their compatibility. And even more importantly, structurally, as the sonnet moves on, they begin speaking separately. Um, but then their metaphors and rhymes start to interlink and come together. It's until, a beautiful moment. Until in the final rhyming couplet, they kiss. Yeah, which is fantastic. I mean, Romeo, we see the immense reserve that he has that he's able to wait a full 14 lines before attempting to kiss Juliet. Like Adam from Love Island. <laughs> Very much like that out-of-date reference. Yes, so we finally see, we finally do get to see the kiss. And then... I suppose at that point, the love takes on something of a transgressive nature. Yeah, I mean, it's, let's also consider the metaphors. The metaphors in their shared sonnets in Act 1, Scene 5 are all drawn from the semantic field of religion. Um, Juliet is described, her hand is described by Romeo as a shrine. She is mm. described as a saint. Romeo is described as a holy palmer. And even their kiss is described metaphorically as a prayer. I see. When I teach this, I think you see a real... Um, 
you see a real um, ease of understanding of this with your students who come from quite religious backgrounds because students who come from religious backgrounds, when they hear Romeo and Juliet talking to each other this way, they get why that was a big deal for the audience at the time. They get why those words were incredibly powerful and that you shouldn't be speaking like this about each other. For a religious audience in the 16th century, this is very transgressive. It's going Mm. against society. It's going against social norms. Yeah. But I think, in a way, the most controversial part of this sonnet is when considering the sonnet form. In the Elizabethan time period, sonnet sequences were very, very popular, but they were primarily written by male poets, male speakers speaking to or about women. Yeah. And what's so powerful about this sonnet, why Shakespeare is so forward-thinking, I think, is the fact that in this sonnet, Juliet's voice is... is she, she is in dialogue with Romeo. Yeah. Um, she is not... Uh, Romeo gives Juliet the agency. She, she interrupts. She competes with her lover. Mm. And even in the rhyme scheme, we see we see this fantastic creation of a thing rather than um, rather than him awooing her, or rather than him sort of um, singing her praises endlessly. We see actually two people creating something. And there's lots of moments in the play where you can be cynical about love, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But that is a moment that seems like real pure connection to me, and seems, as you say, like quite transgressive, quite forward thinking connection. Yeah, and so perhaps, therefore, the point we could make is that what seems so tragic about their love is it seems quite modern yeah. and therefore fundamentally unable to survive in this violent, patriarchal world of 14th century Verona. Fantastic. So we've looked at, our, we've looked at the question. We've taken apart the extract. We've come up with some really nice um, imagery to analyse. We've then thought about a couple of other points in the play. We thought about, OK, We're going back to the start. We're looking at Romeo's empty world before he sees Juliet to talk about love in that context. Then we're looking at when they finally meet and talking about love's transgressive power when the two finally get to speak to each other. So for the last section of the pod, what we're going to talk about is our stretch and challenge section. We should probably have a jingle, so to, uh, something to, to work stretch on. Stretch and challenge. Beautiful, exactly that. So stretch and challenge is where we're going to look at... Um, the uh, the kind of real top level writing, the ideas that when you really get into the kind of depth and meaning of um, of how you get those top grades. Now, I'd like to go back for a minute, sir, if you don't mind, to um, a bit of analysis I like to do with my class on a bit we've already talked about. You know, when we talk about she doff teach the torches to burn bright. Mm. So what I think you kind of get that is, you know, the way you've got this double alliteration of teach the torches and then burn bright. I think what you kind of hear there is a young man's heart getting faster within that sentence. You've got those, those four, but it actually gets quicker. The sounds get quicker through the sentence. So what I teach my students is to write about that, to write about how the audience can even hear Shakespeare's heart accelerating in his words. What do you, what do you think about that? Mr. Galley is speaking as a newly married man. Well, exactly. You know, and, and, and my wife does indeed teach the torches to burn bright. So it becomes, it becomes very easy to understand where Romeo is coming from with these things. So, a stretch and challenge then, where are you, that's the kind of thing that you could write about in terms of language analysis, getting really deeper, really getting into um, the, uh, the creative side of that analysis. But where would you take the argument in terms of stretch and challenge? I think when we're, when we're talking about love, we probably want to consider love in a more complex way. Because one thing we need to acknowledge is that love in the play is not simple. Shakespeare complicates any notion of love being this singular thing. Mm. And I think perhaps the best place to see this is where different types of love come into conflict. So in Act 3, Scene 1, for example, we see Romeo's love for his friend Mercutio come into direct conflict with his romantic love for Juliet. When Mercutio's death, Romeo turns and for a moment seems even to blame his lover. She mm-hmm. says that Juliet's, he, he says, sorry, Juliet's love hath made him effeminate 
and softened Valor's steel. I, I hate him at that moment in time. Like, I absolutely <laughs> hate him. I think the, you know, this, uh, this idea of constantly blaming outside yeah. agencies for what happens to him. You know, and Juliet, who, who made him, who lifted him from the depths of his mm. misery and made him, made the world light and happiness. Yeah. And then she's to blame. She's to blame for the death of his friend because he didn't fight well enough. Yeah, and if we think about the implication of this metaphor, that he's been softened that his steel somehow has been softened by beauty. He's been made effeminate by love. It's, it's actually, there's quite a lot of misogyny in this language mm. here. It implies that love is something that weakens you. Love is something that perhaps is a negative force. But then you can see the same conflict in Juliet. Mm. When she finds out in Act 3, Scene 2, about Tybalt's death, her language becomes filled with oxymorons. She can't quite come to terms with yeah. what she feels, initially at least. She talks about Romeo's serpent heart hidden mm. in his flowering face. She, Wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, yeah. Not exactly the quote, but it's, uh, it's that theme, isn't it? And I think what we could look at in both of these episodes is how love is presented as a complex thing. But mm. perhaps the, the, most, uh, the best example to talk about the complexity of love in the play is, I think, Paris. Mm. People often forget, and I think an important contextual point you could make is that in most productions of the play, and certainly in all film versions that I've seen, Paris's death is cut. Um, yeah, is it, and most students will, of course, see the version where Leonardo DiCaprio runs up the church steps and takes the, take the priest um, hostage and Paris is nowhere to be seen. Whereas, of course, in the play, Paris dies defending Juliet's body. He brings flowers to the tomb and he dies fighting Romeo. He seems quite nice at his, that moment in time. His dying words are to be laying with Juliet. Therefore, yeah. perhaps there isn't as much difference between these two men as we might initially think. Well, that's interesting because I think... The idea then comes on to this thing about fate, right? And, you know, Romeo almost sympathises with Paris at that moment in time. And he sort of says, you know, he, he almost acknowledges him as another fallen soldier in this battle against fate, you know. And we then wonder, One you know... with him in Sour Misfortune's book. Exactly, exactly. It's the quote I would have probably used. And we have this fantastic idea that... They were all victims. But if you think if they're all victims of fate, then poor Paris, you know, he didn't even get any love. Careful, though, Mr. Galley. I think we're wandering from the question. OK, which is something we absolutely don't want to do because we want these podcasts to very much focus on a single question at a time and give you the tools you need to answer that question. However, what you will find very quickly as you go through questions is an awful lot of what you say for one theme or character is multi-purpose. You will be able to use it in another essay and what we might do further down the line is we might do one podcast where we just talk about transferable ideas Definitely. that come up in in several different essays perhaps uh right thank you so much for uh, for your time sir thank you mr gatling i hope you enjoyed yourself and uh, we hope to see you next week on the next edition of revision pod